and welcome to Surf's Up, a Beach Boys podcast safari. My name is Mark Dillon, author of 50 Sides of the Beach Boys, and I am here today with my partner, Phil Migliorati. Hello, Phil. Hello, Mark. We have a very special guest today as our friend David Leaf returns to the show. As many of you know, David wrote the essential book, The Beach Boys and the California Myth, which came out in 1978, and he went on to do many interesting things inside and outside the Beach Boys world. Inside the Beach Boys world, he co-wrote the TV special, The Beach Boys, 25 Years Together. He wrote the press notes for Brian's debut solo album and the liner notes for Capitol Records Beach Boys CD archival releases. He co-produced the Good Vibrations, 30 Years of the Beach Boys, and Pet Sound Sessions box sets. He wrote and produced the TV special, an all-star tribute to Brian Wilson, and directed the wonderful 2004 documentary Beautiful Dreamer about the making of the Smile album. He's currently a professor at the UCLA Herb Albert School of Music, but he's here today for a very specific and exciting reason, and that is the release of his book, God Only Knows, the story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California Myth, which includes the entirety of the Beach Boys and the California Myth, including material from a 1985 update, and most excitingly, a brand new update taking the story from 1985 to the present. Welcome, David. Thank you, Mark. Great to great to be back with you and Phil. And that was quite an introduction. Maybe I should hire you as my agent. Well, you've done so much uh, in the Beach Boys world. It uh, it's almost a pamphlet in itself. <laughs> so your book uh, has been released in the UK. Uh, thank you for coming on and uh, talking to us about it. It will be released in North America September twenty second. Correct. That's right. So we're talking to you a few days into the release. So how is uh, how has the book been received? I mean, it's something obviously a lot of uh, Beach Boys and Brian Wilson fans have been very excited about. Uh, the, the reviews out of the UK have been been great. Um, there's uh, Shindig gave it five stars, a rave review. Um, a thing called uh, I think it's called Outside Left, some uh, a website magazine there called it an absolute must. Uh, uncut, which um, I think is not, you know, I think that the British press can sometimes be a little bit snarky sometimes, but they gave it a very, very, very nice review, eight out of ten, and and both Mojo and Uncut did did big spreads on the book. Um, Mojo called it legendary, which, God, you want to talk about feeling old? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. That's a, that's a pretty good word. Anyway, the, the 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 UK press has been very very generous and. For the most part, the the online social media commentary has been very positive so far. Well, David, uh, I don't think legendary is an overstatement. Um, if I, if you don't mind, I'll start kind of with my personal uh, entree to this book. Um, back in the day, uh, we didn't have a whole lot coming out on the Beach Boys. Uh, you know, at one point, Tiger Beat was about it, and that wasn't very much other than their favorite ice cream cone. But <laughs> magazines began to pick up uh, the the uh, importance of the Beach Boys, or at least began to make that uh, statement that um, this is music still worth listening to. I'm thinking of uh, the Crawdaddy articles, Jules Siegel and uh, Paul Williams. Rolling Stone began to do the California saga, Tom, Tom Nolan, Tom Smucker and Cream, uh, your own Pet Sounds fanzine, that newsprint. Uh, so magazines were pretty much the only place uh, you could find something beyond just, uh, again, 
personal favorite colors of the Beach Boys. Uh, and uh, just at the time yours came out, the, the California Myth, uh, I remember getting a couple of coffee table books. Uh, Ken Barnes had one, John Tobler not long after that, mid-70s, again, right about the publication time of California Myth. And those had some, uh, well, just like the magazines, the content was good. They were doing some research, some assessment analysis, you know, much more than, again, just what songs they liked. Uh, but your book came and I, I call it, it was kind of the first, at least for me, the first real book, meaning it was, uh, you know, like a thick paperback at, at, at that point. And then also it did become a coffee table size. But I think you uh, opened the door for uh, serious journalism and uh, a wider audience with uh, with not just, you know, Beach Boy heads, but people who were in the music field. So thank you. Well, thank you, Phil. That's, that's uh, I'm a little bit almost speechless, although those who know me know I'll never shut up on the subject. <laughs> the, the, um, the, the book in 1978 was really the book that I wanted to read. Uh, you know, as a fan, I had read the Paul Williams Outlaw Blues and, and his conversations with David Anderley and, and the Tom Nolan article in particular had inspired me in, in many ways. Um, but I wanted to tell the story kind of from start to finish as, as best I could. I was a, a journalism major when I started college, and um, I had read in, in freshman journalism class a biography of Edward R. Murrow, who was, who was truly a legendary uh, American broadcast journalist. And I realized that in his work, what he had done that impressed me as a 17-year-old um, was that, that he had used telling the story in a factual way to, to change the world in a positive way. And that seemed like a pretty good uh, idea to me because I was going to school in Washington, D.C. My dorm was five blocks from the White House. In the midst of the anti-war movement, there was a lot of, of cultural tumult happening at that time. Um, as Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young saying, saying, we can change the world. And, and I didn't want to change the world. My, my mission, or I shouldn't say I didn't want to change the, the world in the book. My mission in the book was to change Brian's world. Um, I, I had this idea um, that Brian Wilson was not respected as he should have been. And I, I felt that the book was designed to to almost grab the world by the collar and say, "You got to pay attention to this guy." Mm -hmm. That's right. And and that was that was kind of the one of the one of the driving forces in my in my writing the book. Uh, this book, uh, the update, is something I never thought we would see. I'm I'm, I'm sure glad that that we are seeing it. But uh, you know, I just thought uh, that that was in the past for you. So what what inspired you? to uh, to revisit and, and to update. I know part of it, as you explained in the book, was the fact uh, you thought this would be a great uh, 80th birthday present for Brian. And, and of course, it functions as a great 60th anniversary of the Beach Boys uh, gift to fans. Well, the, the, the reason I never thought I would update it was because it would be too much work. Uh, so, <laughs> and and, and that, was, that was part of it. And the other part of it was that from 85 on, I don't think there was a year for like 20 years where I didn't do something 
Beach Boys or Brian Wilson related in terms of writing. And so I felt like I had been, if not updating it so much, retelling the story in different ways, including you know the Capitol Records 50th anniversary book. I wrote the chapters on the Beatles and the Beach Boys in that. In writing the booklets for, for the Good Vibrations box set, I told the story there. And in writing Brian's tour tour programs, I'm writing it there. In the tribute, I'm right. So I, I was writing it and rewriting it in different ways. And and honestly, my goal was to find a publisher who would who would take the original edition plus the 85 chapters and then add on everything I had done since then. So everything that I had written, including the, the reviews I wrote for my college newspaper and for local LA uh, papers, it would all be in one place. So my writings on the one subject could be there and people could say, I love what this guy says or this guy's full of shit. Whatever it was they said, they, they could have their say about me. And last fall when, when I was put in touch with Omnibus Press in, in the United Kingdom who specialize in music books and I told them this idea, they said, no, not interested in that. But if you'd like to update the book, we would we would love to bring it out. And it was like, oh boy. <laughs> and and I said, well, I'd love to have it out for Brian's 80th birthday. Actually, at that time, Brian was scheduled to be in England uh, in, in June of this year for his 80th birthday. And I said, that'd be a great time to bring it out. And they said, when's his birthday? And I said, June 20th. And they looked at their publishing schedule and they said, well, if you can get us the update, by January 1st, we can have it out in June. And and so I basically had two months, well, wow. actually less than two months to, to write the update. So at that point, are you starting from scratch or do you have journal notes or diary pages or how did, where do you start? I I had some, some things I had filed away in, in uh, if, if you could look at my Microsoft Outlook, you would see countless folders and subfolders full of different things. And um, but in general, I you know once once he told me what they wanted, I, I knew what I had to do um, in terms of what the update needed to be. It had to start in '86 or '85, '86 after the last book came out and, and come up to today. The question would, would was what would the point of view be of the book? And I started thinking, I mean, one of the first things I did was I read the original book for the first time this century. I hadn't read it in a long, long time. It, there was kind of no reason for me to read it. Um, and in reading it, I felt, um, and this is pretentious to say, but it, it felt like you know, one reviewer in 85 had called it, you know, writers remember their good reviews. He called it the indispensable Bible for Beach Boys fanatics. Hmm. And I was think, thinking, well, if it's the Bible, it's it's not my Bible, but it's kind of, it's Audrey Wilson and Gary Usher and Tony Asher and Van Dyke Parks and David Anderley and Bruce Johnston and Chuck Britz and all the people who had done extensive interviews or more than one interview with me, it, it was kind of their their book, their story, and I was the organizing journalist who was trying to to make sense of it. And 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 you know, Earl Leaf, who who is no relation to me, despite 
people thinking I'm his son or something. <laughs> he was the Beach Boys publicist in, in the <laughs> 60s. And, and he gave me access to his files. And there were all these incredible unpublished interviews he had done with Brian. And so I was able to have Brian's voice speak from the 60s at, you know, in, in, in the chronology. And so I told the story through everybody else's voice. And I was organizing it. Now, if, if you go back and you read the, the beginning part, it's clear that I'm introducing it from a point of view in, in that thing, um, you know, that begins just before the first chapter where I'm talking about uh, a concert from, I think, 1976 or 77. And so I, my, my point of view is stated, and then we flash back and, and I bring it up to, uh, you know, 1978 and then up to 1985. Now, how am I going to bring it up to today? Well, in the 85 edition, I found Steve Desperd. He was a great interviewee. But for, for this edition, I decided um, that I was going to interview myself. I was going to tell my story because I'm the witness and or participant in a lot of what's happened in Brian Wilson's life and career in the last 36 years. So I would tell the parts of it that I personally experienced. And then I would fill it in with other things that I thought were vitally important to that journey. But, but essentially it became um, a, a kind of my dinner with Andre, except it's me and Brian uh, going through what we're going through. And, you know, some of it is terribly difficult. The, the Landy years, um, which is horrific for him, difficult for everybody else who wanted to, to see him do great things. But for Brian, as, as he said, it was like being in prison for nine years. Well, that was one of the things that I was most looking forward to reading about in this book, because you you and I have talked before and you you said one day you'll tell a story. And that's how, how you sort of navigated, you know, Eugene Landy, Brian's psychotherapist who controlled his life and, and, and prescribed all the medication to him and all that. And and I mean, it sounds like you had to proceed with great caution because, you know, if you pissed off Landy too much, then he would close the door to Brian to everybody. Well, in, in the 1985 update, um, I was not only cautious in what I wrote then, but I had been th been threatened and somewhere buried in my files is like maybe a letter from his attorney. Basically, you know, if you say the wrong things, we're going to sue you. Um, and, and so I was very careful as to what I wrote in 85. But one of the good things about the law is, is dead people can't sue for libel. <laughs> now, that, that said, I, I'm not I'm not going to make anything up. So I went with the interviews I had done um, with with all the participants in, in the 88 album. Um, I spoke again with Andy Paley at great length about the experience. And again, because we're all we're all not worried about being attacked and having access cut off, we can tell the truth, not the whole truth, because the whole truth it would be a, it would be an entire book all by itself. And B, it would be really an unhappy book to, to read and write. Um, and, and so I, I knew it was a, an important chapter. Uh, you know, people ask me, you know, what's my favorite Brian Wilson solo album? Given all that happened, the 88 album is probably my favorite Brian Wilson solo album. 
And but I mean, like Russ Teitelman, who I interviewed for my book, he said, I mean, he's proud of the work that he did producing a lot of those tracks. But he said, you know, if Landy hadn't stuck his nose into everything, it probably would have been quite different and, and maybe even better. Well, that that's I, I don't think there's any question about that, because there was there was a certain amount of exhaustion that came from dealing with this guy. Um, you you were. I, I used in the book, I said, you know, like Marcel, instead of, a, you know, one arm over my shoulder, one, we always had one eye over our shoulder. What was, what was he or his, he had these uh, guards with Brian who were filming all the time. They were taping everything that was happening. And so, um, and reporting it, he would call into the studio, what's going on? And Russ really, you know, Russ at this point is a, a, a major, major producer, Grammy award-winning producer, Steve Winwood, and all sorts of great records. And 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 you know, he's oh no, you can't work on this song today. You have to work on that song today. It, it really was it was one flew over the cuckoo's nest in a recording studio, and and so I wanted to capture as much of that as 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 possible, but not dwell on it too much. Because sometimes, you know, if, if you know too much of what happened, it's like, oh, God, that colors the music. And just the other day, I was listening to Rio Grande and just marveling at it. It's like, how in the yeah. world does that exist, <laughs> given everything that happened? And, and for, I don't know, about 20 years, Brian would close his concerts with Love and Mercy. And, you know, that's one of the songs that came out of that album, Melt Away. And. And, and you know, there's so many, and, and let it shine, and it, you know, baby, let your hair grow long. It, it's a it's a great great record. So take the psychodrama out of it. And by the way, Landy wasn't a, a licensed psychotherapist, because I think you have to go to medical school to be a, a licensed psychotherapist. He was a psychologist uh, who had, a, shall we say, an unusual style of. of, of of therapy. Now that said, when it came time to begin the chapter um, about about the Landy years, volume two, I had to acknowledge a, a truth, which was if Landy had not been hired, it's very likely that Brian would have died in 1983, based on but based on what I was seeing. So um, we we have to give him. We have to acknowledge that. And then in, in the book, I also say that if we look at Brian's career, Landy's decision for Brian to go solo was as momentous as a decision as had been made in Brian's career in decades. Um, and, and so without that, we don't get that solo album. We don't get Orange Crate Art. We don't get Imagination Live at the Roxy. The Pet Sounds Tours, Brian Wilson Presents Smile, That Lucky Old Son, the Gershwin album, the Disney album. I mean, none of that stuff happens if Brian doesn't go solo. So so if, if I, you know, I think of this story as a long chain of thousands or millions of dominoes. And, you know, when they hit a domino and they all go tumbling, well, that that domino, you take that solo career domino out of the equation and what do we get? And, and the answer is a completely different story. But I think as I'm listening to, to you, David, uh, you're 
trying to help us understand not just what's in the book, but how to read the book. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of us approach a book that we think is a biography uh, and we just want to read, we just expect to read chronology, so to speak. This happened, then that happened, later on this happened. And of course, there is a chronology to your uh, uh, stories, uh, what you reveal. But I think you're trying to talk to us about a person and you, these are examples of what Brian went through. And then at some point, uh, you become much more a part of it, not just an, a, a researcher observer, but someone who actually is living in real time and in real space with this. Um, and maybe to some people, what I just said doesn't make any difference. But I, I don't know. I think for some people, if they just read it, the, looking for chronology, yeah, they're well, going, I, yeah, go I, ahead. I, I think you know what you're saying is really important. Because I had, to, I was deciding what could I write that would be valuable, and we can all go to Wikipedia and see the chronology of everything. You can see every last date. You can see sources cited for every project, for every album, for every documentary, for every movie. That information exists. What could I say that would be, be that would add to that volume of information? And I decided that the only thing that I could offer would be the behind the scenes stories that I had experienced that could give insight into the guy who we all love, into his artistry. And, 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 and that's what I set out to do because otherwise um, to, to, to write a soup to nuts biography, um, you know, I, you know I, I, I talk about the great writer, Mark Lewison who is, is in the midst of a three-part Beatles biography, and there'll never be anything like it. There's never been anything like it before. And you know, I wish him great health and the ability to finish it. He's in the middle of volume two. And the first book is twice the length of, of, of God Only Knows. It's a staggering collection of, of firsthand information that he's gotten from people who lived the story. And that's a, that's a kind of book. I think Timothy White, did that very well in nearest far nearest nearest faraway place and in, in in going back and telling the story of Brian's early years growing yes. up. I, I didn't see any value in retracing those footsteps. Uh, what I what I thought would be meaningful would be to talk about what it was actually like to be there when when certain things were happening, like the 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 finishing you know the Brian Wilson presents smile or, or the how did we get the, the Radio City tribute done and in, in the box sets and, and the things that there's Wikipedia pages on all of these things, but none of them have the stories that, that I'm telling um, in, in the book. You talk about, uh, I mean, you saw so much that some of it you didn't feel was appropriate to share because it was too, too private to Brian. So how do you balance being a friend of Brian's and, and respecting that privacy and, and, and your sort of journalistic sensibilities? Because, of course, there have been some books in the past that have not held back on, on, on those kind of details. So how did you draw that line? Well, I drew, I drew the line very similar in this book to, to what I did in 1978 with, 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 with one, one addendum. In 1978, my goal was to tell the story of an artist and what he went through. And so that was the same going from 86 to the present. Um, the difference now was 
when I talked to, when I interviewed people in 1978 or 84 or whenever, um, there was there were some people who wanted to speak anonymously. There were some people who wanted to speak off the record, who didn't want to be quoted whatsoever, because they didn't um, they didn't want to be uh, cut out of Brian's world. Um, there was also a line that people didn't want to cross. Danny Hutton could sit and tell great stories about Brian Wilson from now to the end of the year, but but. Brian is his friend and he's not going to do that. But if you ask, if I ask him a question about the session where Redwood was recording with Brian Wilson, now that's relevant to the story of Brian's artistic journey. So that's really the, the line I, I, I straddled, if you will, trying to always stay on the right side of that line. There are a couple of places where I hesitantly dipped my toe across it. Um, for example, before you ask me where. <laughs> <laughs> Just going to ask um, you that. Um, so, so there's a story in Beautiful Dreamer, um, the documentary, where on the second day of rehearsals, um, Brian is so upset by what's going on in the smile rehearsals that he leaves rehearsal and he drives himself to the emergency room. And then Melinda tells the story of of you know, going to being in the emergency room and Brian, do you want to go out to dinner or do you want to stay here? And Brian goes, let's go out to dinner. <laughs> um, so I felt that that episode could be could be mentioned in the book, and then I could add one additional thing to it that I think was important because I didn't talk about what happened inside the emergency room. I didn't talk about lots of things surrounding that event. But I thought there was one important thing that I said to Brian that should be in the book. And, and that's what I said to Brian when we left the hospital, when, when we're walking on the sidewalk. Now, is that crossing the line? I don't know. But I felt that because the answer he gave me was similar to the answer he gave Melinda, um, that's also in the Beautiful Dreamer film, that I wasn't crossing the line of, of, of our friendship. So that's 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 one of a, of a couple of places where I was like, boys, should I be writing this? One of the fascinating things about the new book is uh, you, you talk about how you had anonymous sources in the original book. And one of those was Debbie Kyle, who um, was a friend of Brian's, a girlfriend of Brian's in the 70s. Uh, she worked for the Beach Boys, I guess, for about a year handling fan club stuff. And, and so she was an important anonymous source for you in the original book, but now she's on the record in this book. I, I thought that was a uh, very compelling reading. Well, thank you. I'm, gl I'm glad to hear that because um, I thought what she had to say was, was, was an important insight into Brian. Um, for those of you who haven't seen the book yet, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's most of the people listening, um, the the story, the, the, the book ends in 1985, the, the, the second edition. So when I have stories from the 1970s, I have, no, I have no place to put them because I chose not to rewrite the original book. I felt it was there was there were a lot of people who had wanted to read the original book and I wanted to leave that intact. I didn't change the 1985 update for the same reason. 
You didn't get anything wrong in that book? I mean, this is the days before the internet when information wasn't so easy to come by. I'm sure there's plenty that's wrong. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for Andrew Doe to give me a list of... of, 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 of <laughs> I, in fact, yes. seriously, I should, I should have asked Andrew for those corrections before we went to press because those would have been easy to, easy to correct. But um, uh, the, the idea of... So what do I do with these stories from the 1970s? So in the epilogue of of the of the new edition, there were there were there were three specific or four specific chunks of, of material that I put in that that are really from the 70s. One an amazing Linda Ronstadt story. Yes. Um, one a story about the first time Brian came to my apartment. Um, and, and then uh, stories about how I met Danny Hutton, and and then then uh, uh, a conversation with Debbie Kyle, because I just I just felt that what she had to say had had not really been expressed um, in the context that that this book presented it in, which was that people like Linda Ronstadt and Harvey Kubernick and Rodney Bingenheimer and Danny Hutton and Debbie were Brian's guardian angels. That in the 1970s, when he was floundering, they were they were taking care of him when, when called upon. There's an amazing story you're touching on it uh, that happened to you in 1978 after you'd written your book. And uh, Brian, in rough shape, wandering around, he's with uh, Rodney Bingenheimer, disc jockey, and, and writer Harvey, Harvey Kubernick. And in the middle of the night, they, they end up at your apartment uh, with Brian, and uh, Brian's in pretty rough shape. It, it was quite a quite a disturbing story. Well, it's 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 not disturbing anymore, because 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 we're you know it's, we're talking about forty four years ago. Um, so what what happened was one of the friends I made, and, and Phil referred to to the Pet Sounds fanzine uh, at the oh. beginning of our conversation. So, so uh, for that fanzine, a guy named Peter Ream took over writing uh, the collector's section of, of the fanzine. And Peter and I became very good friends. And during the course of writing the book, he and I would have endless, endless phone conversations. And he was enormously helpful in terms of my gathering rare, rare visual material for the book. And I couldn't afford to pay him, so his payment was going to be Whatever I got, whatever I got that he didn't have that was cool, he could have for his collection. And so when the when when I got back from um, when we I designed the book or, or, or the I got back from being at the studio where the book was designed with my assistants and had the stuff in my apartment, Peter flew down um, to pick up the material, and it was just going to be a very fast trip. I picked him up at the airport. We went out to dinner. We went back to my apartment. He was going to fly back the next morning with the material. And unprompted by me, um, he said, you know, this." He said, I think this is the first time I've ever come to Los Angeles where I won't see Harvey Kubernick and, and Rodney Bingenheimer. These were just guys who were always around music. If you were in L.A. and in, in, involved in music in the 70s, um, they, they were there. They were on the scene. And it, we were talking, you know, we we'd gone out for pizza. I'd brought home leftover pizza, put a couple of slices in my refrigerator. 
I don't know that there was much else in the refrigerator, maybe a quarter of milk. Hmm. Um, you know, typical bachelor. Anyway, at, at one o'clock in the morning, there's a knock on the door. And I open it's like, who is it? Who was at the door at one o'clock in the morning? And it's and it's uh, Rodney Bingenheimer and Harvey Kubernick. And with them is Brian Wilson. Now I'm not gonna tell the rest of my side of the story or or their side of the story because up until um, I started working on the update and I spoke with Harvey about that night, he didn't know what happened after they left Brian at my apartment. And and just by the way, Harvey's the one who gave me the uh, the email address of the editor of Omnibus and uh, he, he he midwifed the, this book deal. So he, he should get credit for that too. Harvey wrote the very first review of, of the Beach Boys and the California Myth when he was the LA correspondent for Melody Maker back in 1978. And um, he he's just been an enormous supporter. In 2007, he did a, a, a magnum opus interview with Brian for Brian's tour book that year. He's just he just knows everybody and, and knows everything about LA music, and um, it is just it's just an an inexplicably odd evening um, that and, and I spoke about this in the I, I speak about this in the book that there's there's a certain amount of serendipity to all of what happened how I met Brian, how I met Dennis, how I met Mike Love. I mean, there's there's just like, how did all of these things happen? And I keep going back to those dominoes, one domino after another, they just kept falling. The biggest domino may be me moving from New York to California. Because if obviously if I don't move to California, none of, none of this happens. David, you do a great job at uh, telling us stories about Brian that uh, are personal and, and, and even in some ways uh, maybe seemingly private, but you handle it in a, in a great way, a respectful way. You're not out to just have people read the book because you you say some things you shouldn't. So you know, I I think both of us respect that, especially Mark, who's a who's done the same thing. Yeah, but uh, the, as I'm listening to you, for some reason my mind's going nuts. Maybe not so much to a specific story, but uh, you've been with Brian in not just uh, private situations, but uh, in the recording studio, uh, concert, you've seen him on stage, you've seen him backstage. Um, it's always Brian, he's always himself, but what, when you think about some of the recording s sessions you've been in, uh, what, what was that like for you? Uh, I think as a Beach Boy fanatic, I uh, you know would be very jealous to have been in you know the recording of Little Girl I Once Knew or something like that. And oh yeah, well well, you know as a Beach Boys fanatic, um, it, it's all surreal and real at the same time. If that's possible, um, you know I, I write in the book about how I, I don't even remember which update it's in. But in, in 84 or 83, 84, Landy had invited me to the studio to play back four new Brian Wilson songs, including There's So Many. And why, you know, why am I here? Why am I sitting here with Brian and Dr. Landy hearing these songs? In, in one sense, it makes no sense at all. 
in in another it feels like yeah okay I should I should be here uh, it's it's I'm becoming part of this um, nothing was more fun than being a, a, a sheep on the, on on Brian Wilson presents smile. Um, uh, but there have been times and 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 thing you know things that that weren't great that that weren't going the way one would have hoped. Um, that I you know I felt yeah I felt that as a friend um, the best thing I could do would be just to be a friend to encourage him like you can do this I'm I'm here. And, you know, he, I don't think he needed that up, up, up until 1967. You know, I, he was, he was, you listen to those session tapes. This is a guy who was in complete command. You know, even, even a tape like the so-called Help Me Murray tape. <laughs> um, what, what you understand is he, Murray is pushing the microphone away so it's not being recorded, and Brian is pulling the microphone back because he wants it on tape, he wants it on record, and he's being very reasonable with a with a man who, you know, it, was he drunk? That I can't, you know, I, I didn't give him a, a DUI test, um, but but he sounds drunk. He certainly sounds abusive, um, and. That's 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 the real stuff. Everything in, in, in since you know 1974 has been kind of retread in one way or another, and you know I think of when when Ray Lawler asked Hal Blaine, Ray Lawler's dear old friend of mine, and and a great friend of Brian's. He was he he was at the sessions that uh, I had organized for every um, that everything I need is that the one he did with uh, Wilson Phillips is that the, is that the song I think so yeah and um, Brian and Tony Escher had written a couple of great songs together very quickly and and after the session was over Ray asked Hal Blaine. So how does this compare to the Brian of 20 years ago? And Hal said 85%. And Ray said, well, what's the difference? And Hal said ego. So in, 1980, in 1966, when Brian sang Hang On To Your Ego, he knew, it, it's like he knew what was happening, that it was slipping away. Mm. And, and so Ray and myself and Jerry and, and others, we're, we're we're cheerleaders. We're we're rooting him on. You know, we're we're just we're just friends. You know, we're we're like we're like any group of friends who go who are going out to dinner to have a good time, and some it just so happens it's Brian Wilson sitting there. So Brian Wilson spots, you know, the great songwriters across the restaurant. And says, "Come on, we're going to go over and sing. You've lost that feeling for for Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil and 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 Carol King's at the table. I mean, it's it makes no sense that it's happening. <laughs> but but I think the thing that I experienced, and I don't know if this answers your question, Phil, that what's in my book 
is the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg that that when you're Brian Wilson, so much happens to you every single day. And and I think, you know, again, going back to the Beatles, George Harrison once said, you know, we, it cost us our nervous systems. Um, I, th- I think I use the phrase, you know, one, one year of being a Beatle was like dog years. Mm, it might have been like yeah. 20, year, 20 years of human existence. I mean, they experienced so much in an hour, let alone a day. And I think, I think Brian was juggling so much. And then at some point, he stepped away. Um, I don't think anyone's more eloquent about it than Marilyn Wilson in the Don Was film, I Just Wasn't Made for These Times. If I'm quoting her correctly, she says something like, they tore him down. They really tore him down. And we know who they re- we know who she's referring to when she says they. Um, and so at some point, he just backed away. He has he had the will to survive. And, and that's what's kept him going all these years. An interesting chapter that you're alluding to is uh, so he got back together with Tony Asher, his Pet Sounds collaborator, uh, and they were going to write a, you know, an album's worth of songs for Wilson Phillips. I think that- I think they were. I, I don't know that that was ever you know, fully discussed, but that seemed to be what was happening. Well, you touch on this in your book and you, and you say that. You don't really go into maybe you just don't know or but you don't really go into what happened and why why it did not materialize the way that, you know, many people would have hoped. Is this an instance where this is a private thing that you don't want to cross the line or or you you really don't know and you and and Brian's never told you? Yes. And yes. (laughs) A, A little a little of both. There are certain things that happen that I don't I don't think are that I think are private, and there are certain things that happen that I don't know. And I'm not I'm not being coy about it. It's 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 more presented as here's here are the kind of things that happen to Brian Wilson all the time. I mean, it's just it's if if you look back at his history from from since well include Holland. We're going to Holland to make a record. We're taking the home studio with us. You're coming too. Why? Why am I going to Holland? And there's all those great stories about him not getting on the, on the plane. And then they, they think he's got on the plane and, and his, just his passport is sitting there. Well, why did anybody else go without him? Why did they not stay there and make sure he got on the plane and, and he traveled with him? What kind of weird stuff is going on that you're making Brian Wilson go to Holland? It's not something he wants to do, but but you're not staying staying there to make sure he's going. It's it's a story with with nothing but question marks. The whole the whole his whole life is nothing but question marks, and I'm just trying to give bits and pieces of answers that seem to me to be the truth. And and paint, you know, a portrait, but it's still. I think I said it's an impressionistic portrait. It's it's not a day by day diary because there isn't anything like that. The closest thing we have to that is the music that he recorded. 
What you just said may be the answer to this question. So we look at this impressionistic, I'm not saying it right, but you know what I'm talking about, this this, uh, portrait. Uh, What do you want us to know, not the details behind that you can't share that are private, but what do you want us to know about Brian Wilson? Uh, He's safe, he's okay. What's your, uh, if we could peek around or see that you said, well, this is the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. If somehow we could see and know about that iceberg, what would we know or what would we, how would we feel about Brian? Well, I I think, you know, which Brian are we talking about? Are we talking about the great artist? If we're talking about the great artist, then he's given us more than we ever could have expected. Um, I mean, one of the things that I, I write very early in the, in, the, in the update is if we had been, if this had been written in 75 or 82 or 1990, the, the last thing you would have thought would, would be that Brian Wilson would be the last Wilson brother standing. To, For sure. To then look at the solo career he's amassed um, in the last 35 years is kind of head shaking at how much he's done in terms of who he is, um, the personal difficulties he encounters on a daily basis, just getting through the day. He's He made it clear, you know, the, the, the book that came out in 2016, I thought it was a very good uh, autobiography. Now, obviously, Brian didn't sit down and write that, but I think it, it really had great insight in, into into the way his mind works. So, again, if, if you're sitting there and in your head you're thinking, they're going to kill me, they're going to kill me, they're going to kill me, um, how do you get through the day? How do you do that? How do you, how do you survive, let alone go out on a stage and perform? And so... So the the amount of triumphs that we've been able to witness, in, especially uh, since he started touring, are, are amazing. Um, the last, I would say, you know, I haven't been to a lot of shows in the last um, six years, I guess it is, um, since two, starting around 2017, I haven't been to very many shows, just because of life and COVID. Um, but it's clearly he's not the guy he was in 1999 or the guy at the Roxy or the guy at, at Radio City Music Hall or on the Pet Sounds Tour, the Smile Tour, the Gershwin Tour, the Beach Boys 50th Anniversary Tour. Um, age takes its toll. You posted and, a great picture a few months back because, uh, you know, obviously Brian's celebrating a milestone birthday this year. You're celebrating a younger milestone birthday this year. You turned 70 and you, you have this great photo that you posted uh, on Facebook of you and Brian out for, uh, I don't know if it was a steak dinner or lobster dinner or both, but uh, Brian sure looked happy. But I, I, I'd i like you to expand a bit on, on how Brian is today because there's certainly a lot of chatter going on, you know, about him coming out on stage with a walker. And is, is, he, is he happy on tour? Like, are they forcing him to do this? Like, this well, seems to be raging on. Well, so I'll, I'll answer the questions as best I can. Um, Brian wants to tour. There, there are a number of reasons for that. One, he, he likes being with his musicians. That's clearly where Brian Wilson is most himself is with his musicians. He likes hearing his music played beautifully. He likes to order room service. 
<laughs> so nobody is forcing him to tour. Just you know, if you know, I've been in and around the music business a long time. Um, when you take a band of that size on the road and play the size venues they're mostly playing, it's not they're they're not making a lot of money. So this it's this is not a this is this is something he wants to do. How much longer he'll want to do it, that I don't know. Um, you talk about his solo career, and uh, you know this is something that took so long to happen. Uh, and now it's been going on for many years. But um, I, I think there's a story in your book. Is this not in your book where he's listening to Carl's solo album and he like slams the uh, the turntable needle down? And of course, you know Dennis had come out with this fantastic solo album in, in 1977, and Carl had his solo career, and it seemed like Brian was a prisoner of the Beach Boys machine. Like, did he really want to go to Iowa and record the MIU album? I don't know. But uh, you were prescient about it in your 1985 update because you said, you know, look out world. I think in, in the near future, we're going to get a, a, a Brian Wilson solo album that's really going to knock people's socks off. But uh, maybe you could talk a bit about that. Well, I think, so the story, the story you're talking about, which is, which is way, way at the end of the update, probably on like port page 447 of the book or something like that. You think I've read this thing too many times in proofing it? <laughs> um, so Debbie Kyle is at Brian's house circa 1980, 81. Carl's first album, maybe Carl has a test pressing of it. He wants to play it for Brian. And after a couple of songs, Brian's hand just comes down on the, the record. And the needle, it comes down so hard, the needle doesn't skip across the record. It just goes up in the air and lands wherever it lands. And then Carl says, I guess you've heard enough and takes the album and leaves the room. Um, It sounds like a nasty thing to do. You know, your baby brother's made a record. He wants you, he's he's proud of it. He wants you to hear it. Um, But, you know, you, you made the point, was Brian stuck in this machine? Um, I don't know if I've written about it in the book. You know, I, I no longer know what I wrote about and didn't write about it anymore. I've, 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 God help me, I think I've written well over 200,000 words on the, on the group through the years. And I don't know what's in a booklet and what's in a liner note and what's in the book anymore, which is why I wanted it all together. But, um, so like when the Beach Boys Love You came out, Brian had said in an interview, I want to call this album, Brian Loves You, you know, like Jesus Loves You. And if you listen to if you listen to that album as a Brian Wilson solo album, even though there's the guys are singing on it and there's great vocals from Carl, etc. Um, it's a very eccentric album. Um, but in, in, if you took it as his first solo album, or maybe second solo album after Pet Sounds. Um, it's it's okay. That's cool. But so why does it go from Brian loves you to the Beach Boys love you? Well, it, it has to be business. Um, MIU. It was a matter of voting. The Beach Boys were splintering. So Carl and Dennis were on one side. It was the meditators versus the non-meditators. Mike and Al were on the other side, and Brian gave his vote, from what I understand, to Mike. So they decided to record it in Iowa. Um, now, the irony is 
Brian, Brian is so mercurial in, in his feelings, which I think is one of the reasons his songs are, are both short and extremely powerful, is they go through so many emotional types of emotions in two, two and a half, three minutes. So he may not have wanted to go to Iowa, but once he's there, once he's in the studio, once there's musicians, he's going to write a song and he's going to sing it. It's going to be a pretty good song. Um, is it the song, is it the record he wanted to make at that point? I doubt it. Was it a good record for the Beach Boys career at that point? I don't think so. Um, is it retrospect? Is it good, bad, or indifferent album? Depends what your mood is. It's, you know, it's, there have been worse ones. But, but the key question is, so Dennis does his solo album, which if the Beach Boys had recorded an album of Dennis Wilson songs, we would have had the great Beach Boys album of the, 19th, of the, of the second half of the 1970s. That would have been an amazing record. For Dennis's sake, I'm glad it didn't happen that way because we got to see that Dennis was really a powerful and extremely talented artist. Mike was making, it was a record with Celebration, was that the name of it? So yeah. Dennis makes a solo album, Mike makes a solo album. Now Carl's presenting Brian with a solo album and it's like everyone gets to make a solo album but me. So it seems like a petulant child smacking the the turntable but there's a reason for it now that's debbie and i projecting out what we're thinking into it he may just not have liked it and i don't want to hear anymore and i'm in bed asleep and it's dark and i want to go to sleep so turn this off <laughs> it could it could have been it could have been as simple as that hmm. um but he was so important to the Beach Boys machine, then unless I'm mistaken, which is certainly possible, when they signed their deal with, with Columbia, CBS Records, whatever it was called at that time, it required that a certain there had to be a certain number of new Brian Wilson songs on every album. That was a, that was a condition of the deal. There, did, there was no condition that it had to be a certain number of Al, Carl, Dennis, or Mike, or Bruce songs on the albums. And thus we got shortening bread. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so if you're Brian Wilson, you are stuck in that machine. And it took somebody with the super control that Landy exercised to extract Brian from that circumstance. David, you, you, you've used the word mission uh, in talking about your journey from New York to uh, California. It wasn't just, uh, you know, you'd graduated or something and wanted to get away from snow. I mean, you, you, you truly were on a mission. And as I'm hearing you say, that mission was to tell, the, tell Brian Wilson's story for him. Those aren't your words. Maybe they're mine. Well, they are mine. Maybe they're accurate. I'm not sure. Um, Maybe I would say it. Your mission was to help Brian fulfill his mission, which is his way of telling us uh, what what he has in his heart. Does that uh, ring true with you at all? Yeah, you know, I I came to define it, and and you know, one of the things about life is as as one tells stories, whether to to himself, to yourself, or to others, or in writing, 
you, you don't exactly know when you started telling that story to yourself. But at some point in the 1970s, 72, 73, in my crazy head was the idea, I'm gonna to move to California, write a book about Brian Wilson, become his friend and help him finish Smile. <laughs> crazy. Um, and I think in the book, I even describe it as, as, as crazy, but that was, that would be the, the simplest version of the mission. And part of it was because uh, I, I felt um, indignation, righteous or self-righteously so, that his, that the recording of Smile had been stopped for whatever reason. Part of it was because I wanted and needed to hear Smile, that the, that the, that the music that I was hearing as like all fans in that era, you would start to piece together your own smile. And I think Surf's Up was the grand piece. When Surf's Up came out, it was like, to me, it was like, oh my God, this is just as great as everybody has been saying. Now, that was a realization that I knew nothing about Brian Wilson nor Smile till I read the article in Rolling Stone in the fall of, of 71, and then heard Surf's Up album. When I heard Till I Die, it was, oh my God, he can still do it. Because that's as beautiful to me as any song and any harmonic arrangement as he'd ever done. And it was a terribly sad song. So it was, this music is heavenly. He can still do it. Why can't he get it done. And I tell it to my I tell this story to my students in my in my documentary class, the last week of of the quarter every year, I show them Beautiful Dreamer. And then I tell them an abbreviated version of my story. And I said, you know, had I known it was going to take 33 years, I'm not so sure that I would have embarked on the mission. But but the truth is a, I didn't know it was going to take 33 years. B, I didn't know that it was ever going to happen. And C, I embarked on the mission um, just because I loved what he was doing. And, and I felt that book was my way of giving it back to him. And when he well, took it on the road, when he took uh, Brian Wilson Presents Smile on the Road, he wanted you to be with him. You were, you were accompanying him on, on that tour and, and going to all kinds of interesting places. You, you talk about some in the book. Uh, for me, I mean, uh, religious Beach Boys fan moment was Massey Hall, second row, you know, Brian and his fantastic band doing Smile, and, and, and I'm hearing Cabin Essence, and it's really like rocking the house, and I'm just looking up in this cathedral-type place, and I, I just couldn't even believe I was I was being witness to what was going on. It, it, it was um, a visitation. It, it was a miracle not using those words sacrilegiously. Um, th this is a guy who in 1966, when asked, what are you doing? He said, I'm writing a teenage symphony to God called Smile. And 38 years later, we got to hear it. And uh, I get goosebumps just sitting here talking about that first night in London because it was unbelievable to watch it unfold. Um, and one can argue, uh, you know, nobody knows more about the, the facts of the Smile era than Dominic Priori in his books and, 
and he has he has taken a deep dive into it unlike anybody else i think um i i i bow to him in that regard but what brian and his musicians were doing on stage wasn't about facts it was about feeling and darian sahanaja had helped brian sequence the music in a way that made sense Van Dyke Parks had come in to help with some lyrics that needed polishing or writ being written. And was it the smile we would have gotten in 67? Absolutely not. But it was the smile we got. And to carp about anything seemed more than churlish, given, given that here he was on stage singing those songs, and he still had his chops. So he was hitting the high notes on Columnated Ruins Domino. And you can't ask for anything more than that. Um, it, it, and, and, and that first night ovation went on and on and on. And in the documentary, you see him step up to the microphone. He goes, hold it, hold it. And the audience does, they just, their clapping gets louder. And he steps back. And if you watch that moment, he takes a deep sigh, and it's as if he's let it. He's he's accepting. Again, this is me projecting. It's it's, it's as if he's now accepting the fact that smile is in the world, and it's okay that the world has accepted smile. He's taking it in, and he adorably calls Van Dyke Parks to to the stage for a bow. I mean, Brian is, I don't know, 6'3", 6'4". Van Dyke is a good foot shorter. It's described as like Yogi Bear and Boo Boo taking a bow. and It's just every moment of it is spectacular. And, you know, when, when all the backstage activity is finished after the concert, we ride down in the elevator, going back to the hotel. Brian, again, he doesn't need to say a lot to say a lot. He says six words, and what more can you ask for than for him to say, our smile dream has come true? <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's, it, it, it took critical mass to get to that place. It took a lot of intervening moments, and I could talk about some of them, but that night was the mountaintop. That was, Mount, that was the Mount Everest of Brian Wilson's life and career. We and we beach nuts all believed that once he did smile, and this is a belief we had held for 35 years, that he would then go on to do other great music, which he did. But that that was the, the mountaintop moment. Uh, David, you have a quote here uh, in the book. It says, uh, we accomplished what we set out to do, which is to bring some spiritual love to people. We wanted people to be covered with love because there's no guarantee of someone waking up in the morning with any love. It talks about love and mercy is probably the most spiritual song I've ever written. I know that's not from Smile, but um, it just I'm just continuing to think about you having a mission to help Brian communicate to achieve his mission, and uh, he said he did it. He he, he did, and, and he you know he is much, much deeper. I mean, I got to experience in conversation 
we, we had all read about uh, in, in Outlaw Blues, Paul Williams' book, the, the, the extended interviews with David Anderley. And we, and we got a sense of the kind of thoughts that were, were roiling in Brian's head during the creation of Smile and what he wanted to accomplish. We, we only got a sense of it because it was un, unlike today where there's cameras rolling everywhere. There's not cameras rolling almost at any moment. Although when you watch the lost footage from the Good Vibration session, you see the kind of command he had. You see him and Hal Blaine laughing together. You get a sense of the joy that he was bringing to, to music. He knew the power of, of, of what he was doing and what he had. And when you talk to him 20 years later or so, or 30 years later, and now he's talking philosophically about what music is, like a song like Love and Mercy, I think he's singing to himself in Love and Mercy. I think it's Love and Mercy is what I need tonight. But that makes a bad lyric, so Love and Mercy is what you need tonight. Um, love and Mercy tonight. And that's, that is, you know, as spiritual a moment as I've experienced at a concert, um, the audience rises en masse every time he does that. Um, the band comes together, they hold each other's hands, they bow. You know, it doesn't, there's a reason that that Smile concert was listed in Rolling Stone's 50 greatest concerts of all time in their, in their issue back in 2007. It, it, was, it was just an amazing moment. My, maybe well, one of my favorite sequences in the documentary is the montage of people saying where they had come from for the world premiere of Brian Wilson Presents Smile. You know, from Cape Town, South Africa, to Tokyo, to Los Angeles. It's, you know, again, I get chills just thinking about it, that there, there was this, again, this critical mass of people willing him on to do this. And I, I don't think we can underestimate how important it was that the audience was there on his side every step of the way. I've been backstage with Brian before a show and he's nervous. I can't imagine how nervous he was on that particular evening. Well, you know, I th it's hard to know because we were all projecting how nervous we were. Now, as, as a director, I, you know, when I was making that documentary on Smile, uh, films films have a three-act arc. I needed a, a, a climax to the movie. We had watched him rehearse. I needed him to go up on stage and do Smile as a filmmaker. But I didn't know if he was going to walk up on the stage. I really didn't. Now, that shows... No, I didn't, I didn't share that with anybody except my cameraman, who I said, I want you to follow him up the steps. And I, and I, it was a terrible analogy. I, I compared it, I said, compared to the film, I, I feel like he's gonna going up on the stage, like in the movie, Dead Man Walking. Like he's, mm. going, to, like yeah. he's going to his execution. <laughs> and that's all my projection. That's all my projection. Yeah, he was sitting there alone, thinking, meditating. 
We don't know what he, what he was thinking. He could have been thinking, I hope room service is still open when we get back <laughs> to the hotel. I mean, seriously. But not, you know, he, he, he knew the, the import of that moment. And um, he, he, he rose to the occasion. This is, this is a guy, you know, who came back, and, and that's what makes both the movie and the book a redemption story. He came back from the gates of hell more than once. And he, he conquered all. At the, at the very end of the first Smile concert, I was sitting, I don't know, about 20 rows back uh, with, with my late wife. And at one point, as Brian was standing there taking in this ovation, I saw something that was startling. And I turned to my, I turned to Eve and I said, did you see that too? And she said, yeah, what did you see? And I said, I saw what looked like demons flying out of Brian's head. And she goes, that's what I saw too. And it, it was, it, it, was I, it's, it was obviously not indescribable because I just described it, but it was, it was what the heck is going on? And, if, and in the interview I did with Brian for Beautiful Dreamer, one of the interviews, I asked him, you know, if he felt that. And, and he, he said that he did. Um, I was glad that a year later when we were on the Charlie Rose talk show and Charlie Rose asked him about it, he, he affirmed it in a, in, a, in a much more, I think, in a stronger way. Because interviewing Brian, who can be a challenge, as you've seen in the, the Long Promised Road documentary. Um, he doesn't always want to talk. And, and so sometimes you might ask him a question and he'll agree with your answer because, because it's easier than actually <laughs> answering. So, so um, I saw what I saw. Eva saw what she saw. Brian at least twice has said he felt that way. And, and so the completion of Brian Wilson Presents Smile and its presentation to the world was a cathartic experience for him. Uh, that I don't think anybody could have anticipated, predicted, as David Anderley says in the film, the longest gestation period in history. The guy gets pregnant in 1966 and gives birth <laughs> in 2004. It, it was, and I'm glad David lived to see it happen because it meant a lot to him. And speaking of David Anderley, one of the pictures in the book, his son allowed us to use uh, uh, the painting, John David Angeli's painting of Brian as a full color uh, page in, in the uh, color section of the book. And, and, I, and I just love looking at that. That's just, that's just a great, great yeah. gift to, to, to me to have that in the book. Yeah, it's a famous painting. Well, you've tried, I think you've tried to uh, prepare us for this. Uh, somewhere in your book, I took this quote out. You saw Dennis Wilson, I think this was around the time you just just moved to California you, and you went up to him. You didn't know him. You said, hi, Dennis, my name is David Leaf and I just moved to California to write a book about your brother, Brian. So I think from the very beginning, you've been trying to tell us what your POV was, your point of view and your mission. And, uh, you know, maybe we we all want it to be that and something different as well. Who knows? Well, I, I, look, I, I, you know, in, in 
Mark was referring to the author's note in the new edition, which is a pretty extensive uh, corrective, if you will, or, 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 or a different perspective, because I was 25 years old when I wrote the book the first time, and now I'm now I'm a lot older, and I'm looking back, and I'm, I'm hopefully more of a maybe an, almost an elder statesman. I've got the gray hair for it, and and so I'm looking back. What could I have done differently? Well, certainly the title of the book was a problem. The fact that there was a cover of the beach picture of the Beach Boys on the cover would give people rise to thinking this is going to be a, a book about the Beach Boys. Um, that's why the new book says God only knows the story of Brian Wilson before we get to the Beach Boys part of it, because I wanted it to be clear that it's Brian Wilson first, the Beach Boys second, and then the California myth third. Um, but so, so anybody who looked at the cover of the, the 78 edition or the 85 edition and picked it up would be fair to say, well, wait a second, I thought I was buying a Beach Boys book. But if you opened it before you bought it, the first sentence was, this is the story of Brian Wilson. So um, I, I think we've probably spent too much time on that aspect of it. There, there are, there, there are Beach Boys, there's a global world of Beach Boys fans. And then there's a piece of that uh, pie who worship Brian. And I'm in that piece of pie. And I love Beach Boys, the Beach Boys too. Just, it's just a different kind of love. Well, so speaking of which, it's their 60th anniversary this year, or at least they're celebrating their 60th this year. Their first single was really 1961. So, I mean, your your book becomes part of that celebration. Now, as far as what the the members of the Beach Boys are doing, do you think it's any kind of missed opportunity that, that Mike is continuing on with Bruce and his band, Brian's continuing on, you know, with his band, and they're not coming together and celebrating? I know Al Jardine has been vocal that he's not happy that they're not coming together. And let's face it, for all the things they've done wrong, the 50th anniversary was 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 a great reunion. I mean, they, they put on great shows at that time. Um, I guess it's a missed economic opportunity. Um, I, I don't, you know, without Carl and Dennis there and, and Brian not singing as well as he was 10 years ago, it's, it's, um, it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, I've heard talk of there being some sort of anniversary special. There's a documentary being made. Um, there was a, a collection put out uh, uh, not too long ago that I, I'm just kind of shaking my head at because I'm not quite sure what it was designed to accomplish. Um, you know, for the most part, people want to hear the greatest hits. I think the three of us have a very different expanded view of what the greatest hits are. And it's not 10 songs or 15 or 20. It's, it's more like 50. And wasn't there a 50 big ones collection yep. put out? That's right. so, I, um, so, you know, a, a repurposed version of that for the, for, for the web world might have worked. But... I, I don't know what there there's there's I'm not sure there's anything more for them to say. They are the greatest American band of all time. They are the most influential American band of all time. Sorry, deadheads. Um, <laughs> the um, you know what the music that but the that's because of the music recorded between '63 and you know take it as far as you want, but certainly not beyond '73. And that's the that's the music 
that we can argue about which is your favorite album from that period, which are your five favorite albums from that period. But that's, to me, the essence of the greatness of the Beach Boys. And everything since then has been, has not lived up to expectation. So, David, you've done so much. You've gifted us with this unexpected book. Is this your la- is this the last word from you on on Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, or or is there anything else potentially in the works? <laughs> Can I catch my breath first? Um, <laughs> you know, honestly, guys, the the I I can you know I wrote I wrote the essay for the uh, for Brian's tour book in the middle in the middle of writing this book. Um, I, I love to write about Brian. It's the thing I love to write about the most. Um, the, qu- the question really will be, does anybody care what I have to say? And and so it's it's up to you, Mark and Phil, and the audience to, to, to not just buy the book, but twist your friend's arms to buy the book. <laughs> be, be, because um, the publishing world um, is looking will be looking at the sales and saying, hmm, we'd like another book, David. What do you have? Because I've got four other books that I could do on the subject. That that you know, is there a world? Is there a world for? Me? And and as you know, Mark, in doing books, these are not you're doing this is this is all labor of love. Hallelujah. Um, it's it's it, it's done because you have no choice but to do it. And with this book, I figured I better get it down while I still remember this. And even so, there's a day doesn't go by where somebody says, hey, you forgot to write about such and such. And I go, oh, shoot. (laughs) You know, so so there's there's more to write. Is there more important stuff to write? I I don't think so. I, I think in terms of my telling of this story, of my journey, of Brian's journey, of of what I did, this this should be the last word, at least for a while. David, is there anything else you wanted to add about uh, the release of this great old and new book? Um, in terms of the book, you know, I I think people should understand that it's not a a blow by blow chrono- chronological uh, biography. But it's 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 a story of Brian Wilson as seen through my eyes uh, from the last 40 years. Well, David, it's been so great to have you on again and, and talk about this momentous release. So it's God Only Knows, the story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys and the California Myth from Omnibus Press, available now in the UK and in the US uh, starting September 22nd. Please buy it. And that way we will get four more books from David. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Great to talk to you. Thank you, David. Thanks, Phil. And thanks to everyone listening. Come back next time and we'll do it again.